Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 318. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's sad to say, but it's the final week of our annual Women and Aliens Appreciation Month here on the Drabblecast. But our annual celebration of talented women writers doing amazing things in science fiction doesn't have to end with this week's story, though. We've got two other great women and alien stories by authors Karen Tidbeck and Mary Robinette Kowal up on Drabblecast B-Sides, which is our totally rockin' feed of monthly bonus content. That feed of additional bonus content, not to mention the entire backlog of over 40 episodes, is available to listeners who like what we do here at the Drabblecast enough to donate and help us keep going by subscribing to an automatic $10 a month. There's a special place in heaven for you people out there who donate to independent creative media enterprises like the Drabblecast. And the toilet paper there has more soft, moisturized layers than your sweet ass probably knows what to do with. God damn. Hey. Sorry, but it's like using a sock. In my father's house, there are many plies. So, needless to say, if you're fiendin' for more aliens this month, this doesn't have to be the last stop. Sign up, help us out, get you some more stories on the double. It is, however, the concluding week for the Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. That's right. The results are in, folks. In February, you fans out there nominated your favorite 2013 feature stories, episode art covers, 100-word stories, and as a new category this year, 100-character stories from our weekly ongoing Twitter contest. Then, once the top five were narrowed down into each category, you voted for your single most favorite in each from the past year. This is the fifth year we've done this, and we go all out with the trophies, because this audio magazine is all about you. You community of listeners, readers, and writers out there with your big creative imaginations and your smarty pants brains, your sophisticated taste for the unique and fun, the original and the unpredictable. You aren't ashamed to brandish the mark of the weirdo. You wear it proudly, unless it's like, really a mark or something branded on you by elders from some particular culture, community, societal group that you once identified with and lived amongst in what seems like a hundred lifetimes ago, and then it's probably a bit of a sore spot. The winners in each category are recognized with a pretty snazzy plaque that we get custom-made, Drabblecast style, with the author's names inscribed and the usual what-have-yous. All but the centerpiece award, the winner of Best Feature Story, who gets the sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory, a big ol' inscribed crystal goblet on a big ol' inscribed slab of marble with a big ol' goddamn eyeball stuffed inside. It's awesome, the way that water is awesome when it's mixed with barley, hops, and yeast. And here are your winners. Winner of Best 100 Character Story, Shawnee, in episode 283. As I type, revelations pour onto the screen. I realize I've selected absolute truth, Seraph. The font of all knowledge. (laughs) 
winner of Best Episode Cover Art, Bo Kyer, with the cover art for Drabblecast B-Sides Episode 25, The Fungi from Yagoth. Winner of Best 100-Word Drabble, Nathan Lee, with Structural Decay in Episode 290. He got up just like every morning and shut off the alarm clock. He brushed his teeth and got dressed. He didn't notice anything odd until he got to the kitchen and tried to verb the eggs. He blinked and looked down at the saucepan where the nouns still sat verbing. What? He verbed. He tried to verb the nouns again, but pronoun wouldn't verb. Frantically, he clung to specificity, but pronoun verbed adverb. Noun verbed preposition article noun, but when he opened it, he saw the noun fading into adjective noun. Noun verbed. Noun verbed adverb. Expletive. Noun verbed. And the winner of the Drabblecast Best Story of 2013, as voted by the majority of fans, is Shannon Garrity, flying on my hatred of my neighbor's dog, in episode 298. My pilot for the test flight was Elena. Just sit down under the odiometer, she said, and we'll get our asses to Mars. I hadn't seen an odiometer set up like what they had in the cockpit. It was some NASA model, more black and silver. What do I have to do? What you always do. I'm the pilot. I'll take care of the rest. That made sense. I didn't have to fly the thing. I just had to fuel it. That didn't stop me from shaking as I positioned myself under the odiometer. The vast windshield in front of me, a digital screen really, but I didn't know that at the time, looked out over the Texas airfield. I shut my eyes and thought of my neighbor's dog. God, I hate that animal. Nothing happened. I hated some more. The floor rattled as the engines purred to life, and purred, and purred. We're at three percent, said Elena. Three percent of what? Ah, I'd never gotten the mechanics of spaceflight. You gotta hate harder than that. I'm hating as hard as I can. I can't hate any harder. Two percent, come on. Your dossier says you can't stand that dog. It's the worst dog, the barking and the whining and throwing itself against the fence, and it's an ugly bastard. Does the dossier say that? 1.5. The engines shut down. Elena stared at me. I heard you were the best. I am, I said. I, I was. It was close, and competition was tough. But then again, it always is. Congrats, Shannon. Keep on hating whatever you're hating, because it seems to be working out for you. And enjoy that chalice. Well earned. All right, let's hit a hundred-word story. This week's Drabble comes to us from Drabblecast 4 member Chicago Mike, and it's called Can't Live. Here goes. As I write these words... I know that I will soon die. Yet my end cannot come fast enough to escape the memory of the horrors I have experienced. My only comfort is the hope that others may read this and avoid my terrible fate. 
It was a primitive transmission emanating from the third planet of System EE4310X73 that destroyed our shipboard AI and drove my crewmates to murderous insanity. When I close my eyes, I still hear that terrible voice, a soul-shattering wail repeating, with or without you. With or without you, I can't live. Kill me indeed. I always knew Bono had a more complex reproductive life cycle than he was letting on. They grab the colonists, they move them over there, and they immobilize them to be hosts for more of these. Not that I spend, like, too much time thinking about Bono's reproductive whatever. I'm just saying that highly adaptive, potentially parasitic organisms like that can be kind of... I don't know, I mean, what is too much time anyways? Like, who even gets to decide that? He's the one spending too much time thinking about Bono's complex evolved reproductive functions, making up rules and shit about him. I mean, get a hobby. You know what, let's just drop it. Game over, man. This week for our feature story, we bring you How They Tried to Talk Indian Tony Down by Cage Baker. Before becoming a professional writer, Cage spent many years in theater, teaching Elizabethan English as a second language. Her first stories were published in Asimov's Science Fiction in 1997, and her first novel, In the Garden of Iden, came out the same year from Hodder and Stoughton. She's probably best known for her Company series, a set of historical time travel novels. Other notable works of hers include The Empress of Mars, which won the Theodore Sturgeon Award in 2003 and was nominated for a Hugo, and The Women of Nell Gwynns, which won the Nebula Award for Best Novella in 2009. In 2010, Cage passed away after a fierce battle with cancer. This story first appeared in FictionWise.com in 2001. So without further ado, we bring you How They Tried to Talk Indian Tony Down by Cage Baker. This happened about ten years ago, out at Tobin Farm. Back in the 60s, somebody bought Tobin Farm for the purposes of holding a renaissance fair there during the summers. Off-seasons, it became a kind of commune for the people involved in putting on the fair. They lived modestly in sheds and trailers scattered on a hundred acres of oak wilderness, collecting unemployment between fairs. They had their own communal security force in case of problems. Twenty-five years on, though, most of the members of the commune were arthritic and bespectacled and never got up to much in the way of trouble, except for domestic disputes or the occasional DUI. Abby and Martha Caldicott lived at the foot of a hill, some distance from the center of the little community. Abby was into Wicca, and Martha wrote romance novels, and during the fair, the sisters ran a beer booth. 
Remote as their trailer was, it was cozily domestic. There were bright geraniums and coffee cans. There was a small lawn and lawn chairs. There were plastic party lights strung from the awning, bright tropical fish. The lights shone out clearly into the shadow of the hill. It was a dark, cold shadow, because the hill was thought to be haunted. On the night it happened, Abby was washing dishes after supper, and Martha was watching an Alfred Hitchcock movie on the VCR. Their television reception was oddly sporadic, when they became aware that somebody was up on the hill, whistling. It was a plaintive whistle, as though somebody was trying to summon a lost dog, and as the sisters conferred, they realized the sound had been going on at intervals since that afternoon. It was now pitch dark and past nine at night. Given that, and given the rumors about the hill, the sisters decided not to investigate. Abby made a pan of cocoa, and Martha turned up the volume on the birds. They were sipping cocoa and watching the film when headlights flashed outside. The sisters sighed and paused their tape. Abby got up and went to investigate. A pickup truck had pulled out into the gravel space beyond the lawn. Killer Mikey was just getting out. Killer Mikey had been to Nam a long time ago and done very bad things there. He was okay now, though his hands still shook sometimes, but because he was familiar with things like radios and situations, he'd been made security chief for the commune. He stood now, doubtfully shining his maglite up into the trees, announcing into his radio that he'd arrived at location. Abby asked him what was going on, and he asked her if she knew what the whistling was. She told him she didn't, and he told her it was worrying all the people who lived on Snob Hill, which was the cluster of trailers at the opposite ridge. He had radioed for backup. As they stood there talking, the whistling came again, and this time right after it, a faint little voice cried out, Hey! from way far up in the darkness. Killer Mikey walked backward, shining his light farther up, and asked who was up there. After a long moment, the voice replied, Tony, and Killer Mikey frowned and said, Indian Tony? Indian Tony was called that because he claimed to have been an Oglala Sioux shaman in a previous life. Indian Tony affirmed that it was he. Killer Mikey asked him what he was doing up there. There followed about five minutes of shouted questions and mostly incoherent answers, but the gist of it was Indian Tony had gone for a hike and got himself lost and didn't know how to get off the hill. Killer Mikey told him all he had to do was walk downhill toward his voice. Indian Tony said he couldn't do that. Killer Mikey went to his truck, backed it out a few yards, and turned on the headlights. There, all Indian Tony had to do was walk downhill toward the lights. Indian Tony said he couldn't do that either. As they were trying to hammer out why, Killer Mikey's backup arrived. Jerry Moss, who had taken the call in his truck as he was returning from town with an order of Chinese. His truck rattled up to the trailer. He parked beside Killer Mikey and jumped out, complaining that his dinner was going to get cold. 
When Killer Mikey explained the situation, Jerry grew even more irritable and called Indian Tony a white asshole. Jerry happened to be a full-blooded Miwok, and Indian Tony was, in fact, white. So neither Abby nor Killer Mikey could argue the point. By this time, Martha gave up on the birds and came out to see what was going on. As they were explaining to her, Indian Tony began to yell for help again. Now there were answering yells from beyond the ridge, and a procession of headlights came bobbing down as more people were drawn to the scene. Muttering, Jerry got his portable high beam out from the bed of his truck and shone it up the hill, walking back and forth to see if he could pinpoint Indian Tony's location. When he did, it was immediately obvious why Indian Tony couldn't come down. In the blue-white beam, they spotted his tiny pale face peering out from the branches of a madrone very far up the hill and about fifty feet off the ground. Jerry cursed and called Indian Tony a jackass. Killer Mikey shouted up to tell Indian Tony they'd keep the light on him so he could climb down. Indian Tony replied that he couldn't do that. He sounded as though he were crying now. The people from Snob Hill were arriving by this time, getting out of their trucks and staring up the hill at Indian Tony trapped against the stars. Old Ricker, the fiddler, who lived in the trailer next to Indian Tony's, came up to tell the security team that he'd seen Indian Tony go out that afternoon wearing his ceremonial regalia, a Plains War Bonnet replica he'd found at a swap meet, which usually meant that Indian Tony was going on a vision quest. It also usually meant that Indian Tony had dropped acid. Killer Mikey sighed. Jerry cursed again and clipped the high beam to the hood ornament of his truck. He got out his carton of chow mein and a pair of chopsticks and climbed up the hood of his truck to eat. Killer Mikey made a megaphone of his hands and asked Indian Tony if the reason he couldn't climb down was because he was messed up. Indian Tony replied that he couldn't come down because they were down there. Martha shook her head and expressed her opinion that Indian Tony was still all messed up and wondered what they should do now. Nobody wanted to call the sheriff's department because little incidents like this tended to contribute to the slightly unsavory reputation that Tobin Farm had developed over the years. Killer Mikey called up to ask Indian Tony what they were and was informed that they were some kind of animals, man. What kind? He didn't know. What did they look like? They had big, pointed ears. Martha went running back to her trailer and came out with the Roger Tory Peterson field guide to Western mammals. Through Killer Mikey's patiently shouted interrogation, they built up a gradual description of what Indian Tony thought he was seeing as Martha paged through the book by the headlights and at last narrowed the possibilities down to either a lynx, lynx canadensis, or a bobcat, lynx rufus. Then they narrowed it further to bobcat because Tobin Farm was much too far south for lynxes. The only problem was Indian Tony insisted they were all white, which bobcats were not, and that he had seen three pairs of eyes, though the field guide stated that bobcats were solitary hunters. 
Jerry looked up from his chow mein long enough to observe that Indian Tony might be seeing spirit animals, and it would serve the dumb bastard right if a spirit guide chased his white ass up a tree. He added a few crotchety words about people who had the nerve to co-op other people's sacred stuff after taking their land away, too. Then he flipped his long gray braid back over his shoulder and went on eating. Killer Mikey nodded sadly and lifted his hands to his mouth again. He told Indian Tony that they were probably not really there, and if they were, they were probably just little wild kitties, and if he threw something at them, they'd probably go away, so why didn't he just break off a branch and throw it at them, and then climb down in the light of the high beam? Indian Tony said he didn't want to do that. They argued back and forth for several minutes on the subject as Martha continued to search through the field guide. Abby asked if anyone would like some cocoa and went off to the trailer to make more. Ricker asked Jerry whether or not somebody ought to go up the hill and bring Indian Tony back down themselves. Jerry replied that he wasn't about to because all that undergrowth up there was poison oak. Ricker replied that he thought Native Americans were immune to poison oak. Jerry said like hell they were, and told Ricker about the time he'd gone fishing at Rincon and walked through a thicket of it, not seeing the leaves because it was winter, but how even that much exposure had been enough to make his dick swell like a beer can. Ricker tisked sympathetically. He was telling Jerry about the time he got itch mites from sitting on an infested hay bale when Killer Mikey at last persuaded Indian Tony to break off a branch and throw it down at whatever it was that had treed him. Everyone there heard the slight crack and then the crash as the branch went down through the underbrush. Rum protested something sounding seriously big cat in nature and quite angry. The sound echoed off the surrounding hills. Everybody froze. Jerry had lifted a big hunk of noodles and bean sprouts halfway to his open mouth, but now they slipped from his chopsticks, plop, on the hood of his truck. Indian Tony began to gibber and scream. Killer Mikey observed that that had sounded like a goddamn tiger, man. His hands were shaking. Not a good sign. Martha wondered if they maybe should call animal control. Ricker volunteered. He jumped into his VW van and went puckering off in the direction of the phone booth out by Highway 37. Killer Mikey staggered to his truck and leaned into the cab. He pulled the seat forward and rummaged among the various guns he had back there. Jerry finished his chow mein in a hurry and jumped down. Abby opened the trailer door and stood silhouetted against the light, calling out to know what was going on. Everyone told her just to get back inside. There was a crash up the hill, and Indian Tony cried out that they were coming up the tree after him. Jerry grabbed the high beam and directed it at the tree, and those present could see the distant branches thrashing in a manner that suggested something really big was climbing up from below. Killer Mikey found his AK-47. He pulled it out and aimed it up the hill, but his hands were trembling really bad now. Indian Tony, shrieking, was trying to get higher up the mandrone and breaking branches in his efforts. Jerry shouted up to him to stop, to hold on to the trunk with his arms and legs, or he'd fall and break his neck. He handed off the high beam to Martha and pulled a handgun from the glove box. 
Then the high beam went out. And so did the truck lights and the lights at the trailer. Flash! A second later, the mandrone was lit again, blue-white as before, but not by the high beam. A column of radiance was stabbing down from the bottom of some kind of black aircraft hovering just above the hill. Below, they saw Indian Tony turn his face up, staring in astonishment. He rose, pulled by the light, gliding with a few broken branches upward into the craft. Something fell fluttering down. The war bonnet he'd been wearing. There was another feline roar, a distinctly disappointed sound. Something very large made a last lunge at Indian Tony, and they caught a glimpse of it for just a second in the light. And it wasn't any Lynx Rufus or Lynx Canadensis either, though it was obvious why Indian Tony had been seeing three pairs of eyes. There followed a moment of shock in which all persons present quietly decided that they couldn't possibly have seen what they just saw. Killer Mikey blinked rapidly and then took aim again, gamely trying to draw a bead on the aircraft, it being less of an insult to his rational mind. Jerry grabbed his arm and told him not to be an idiot. If the aircraft crashed, the government would be all over the farm, like what happened at Roswell. Nobody wanted that, of course, because geraniums weren't the only plants grown on the farm. Killer Mikey lowered the gun, and they all watched as the aircraft moved slowly off to the north, a darkness silently occluding stars wherever it passed. Something big was crashing through the woods below, following vainly after it. Gradually, the sound died away. The lights came back on, startling everybody, and Killer Mikey accidentally blasted hell out of Abby's and Martha's lawn chairs. Nobody said anything, though, until Ricker came puttering back and leaned out of his van to announce that Animal Control was sending a unit over as soon as possible. Then he realized they were all staring like zombies and wanted to know what happened. Jerry explained that Indian Tony had seriously offended something, but that the Star Brothers appeared to have bailed out his sorry ass. Ricker thought that over and announced he was going back to his trailer. It seemed like a good idea. When the Amador County Animal Control Department van crossed the tracks and bumped along the farm's dark, rutted access road half an hour later, they couldn't find a soul to direct them. Finally, they gave it up and left. Nobody ever saw Indian Tony again. His disappearance went unreported, and because he had no family or job, unnoticed. And that was the end of the matter, except that the inhabitants of the commune stayed well away from the hill after that. Abby and Martha, in fact, paid Jerry $50 to hook up their trailer to his truck and move them over to the other side of the ridge. Everybody knew what had rescued Indian Tony, but nobody knew what it had rescued him from. And that was a little worrisome.
that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Bit of an O. Henry vibe to this one. Bit of an O. Henry twist. All right, let's close this week out with our 100-character story winner, first-time winner, cumbrous and unlovely, with this one here. Alarm forces Toad awake. He's running late. Grabbing his keys, there's no thought of breakfast. He'd just eat on the fly. Think you can write a story with only 100 characters? Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter for the winners early each week at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. If you get a chance, write us a review on iTunes, blog about us, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Kathleen Beckett. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, Bobcats are solitary hunters. <laughs>